Hey there, Spiff, are you ready? There, Spiff, what do we say? There, Spiff, are we or aren't we recording? Oh, two on one, everything else is ready. You and I, we welcome our guest this week. Doug Liz and comes back to talk again this time of Sondheim man and it's Mary Lee for us but us old friends hear the good song it ends so here's to us who's like us damn few hi you're listening to two on one I promise not to sing any more of this episode I'm the Reverend Arthur Stewart you can't make that promise, and I am the Reverend Stephanie Kendall. <laughs> uh, we're merrily rolling along today in Sondheim month. It's good to see you today, Spiff. Good to see you. How's your new year going? You know, it's all right. Um, I always make too many resolutions, but this year I'm sticking to it. Maybe. I like I don't know. You don't know? Are you going to share your resolution? I have. I have another like enormous list of them. And mm. there's too many to come up, but you know, I'm blogging again and I'm not going to share my blog name in case I haven't posted any posts yet. So <laughs> I want to tell you about our dear friend and sponsor, Jeff Wonro Designs. Yes. Because as our listeners know, Jeff Wonro is still our lead sponsor here on Two on One, and we are fantastic. Amazing. I'm going to say it again right now, and I'll say it again at the end of this promo. You can use our new code. Two on one, all one word, all letters, then one five, two on one, one five, number one, number five, for 15% off your entire stole order. It is valid through the entirety of 2022. Friends, we've extended this discount, or rather Jeff Wonro Designs has. So if you have stoles for Advent, for Epiphany, for Lent, for Eastertide, for Pentecost, for Ordinary Time, for weddings, for funerals, for pride celebrations, or anything in between. Jeff Wanro is your guy. Well, so we're in the midst of Sondheim month. We are. And talking about the life and legacy and a few of the shows of Stephen Sondheim. And we're so thrilled to welcome back today uh, the Reverend Douglas Ann Cartwright. She's here to talk about Merrily We Roll Along. I gave her a 30-second warning, and now I'm going to hit admit. Fantastic. Okay. All right. There she is. Welcome back to Two-on-One. We're so glad you're here. And thank, thank you, for you for having me. Sondheim month. Yeah. Yes. So Sondheim. when we reached out to our folks uh, right after the passing of Mr. Sondheim in uh, late November, early December, I time is a blur at this point. Douglas Ann was at the top of our list because she's a theater nerd like we are. And I know her well enough to know she loves Sondheim. So we're like, hey, we have one topic picked. We're not going to tell you which one deuces. What do you want to do? And Douglas Ann was like, I'd like to do Merrily We Roll Along. So. What is it? Why did you pick it? Tell us all about it. I love Merrily We Roll Along primarily because I was in it in college. I was in the ensemble and I just remember it was such a wonderful experience with the big cast. And the more that I grow up, the more and more it becomes um, even more relevant for me. And I, I think I watching it now in my mid thirties, you know, looking back on the life that I've had until now, it just, it's a lot, it's even more impactful than it was for me then. Um, and so I think it's a show that, that grows with you. 
Well, for the uninitiated into the cult of Sondheim, Marilyn Lee, We Roll Along is a 1981 musical uh, based on a movie. So book by George Firth, music and lyrics by Stephen Sondheim, directed by Hal Prince. And it's it's this amazing what's that i'm sorry based on a play sorry do you want to back us up it's originally a play uh yeah yeah, not a movie i beg your pardon i believe there was a movie version but i i could be wrong and i am wrong consistently Um, no it's fine i just wanted it's where we're we're naming that so the play starts with two friends on the outs and it goes backwards by about what 20 years and it kind of tells the story of how they came to be um retrospectively famously this show flopped so hard on broadway when it came out they had a cast where like the oldest member was 25 and the youngest was 16 it it's it's like that sondheim show um where and it actually ended the partnership between hal prince and steven steven sondheim for like 20 years but okay so merrily on that beautiful note of friendship and connection No, I mean, it's true. I think it ran, what, 16 performances on Broadway, like in its actual run. It did like 59 previews in which they were all just like every night was a rewrite, every, you know, every every new thing. Um, And yet uh, it has a very kind of cult following. It has some real bops in there. Like um, the music, some of it is just truly stunning. Um, And also... The show has its problems, and yet, I what I like about it, I don't know if y'all uh, kind of resonate with this, is that it continues to work on itself. Mm. Um, that every, you know, off-Broadway cast or tour, or now even with um, the Ben and Beanie movie that's coming out, or that will eventually come out, because um, they are filming it over 20 years, um, that, you know, it continues to reinvent itself in new and little ways and be attentive to not only who's playing the characters, but um, how the world has changed to adapt to what is necessary to like name within the story. And even in like within Sondheim's life, like he worked to kind of reimagine many of his shows in, in more for the cultural uh, uh, more immediacy um, and so that this is just one of them that that has continued to uh, find new ways to delve into the the problems <laughs> of the show and of, of life itself. <laughs> yeah, and I think that it reflects life so beautifully in in some of those ways, right? Even in its in its its brokenness and the ways in which it really doesn't work. It's like, oh well, sometimes life doesn't work. Uh, I also really I, I appreciated that like the original cast recording doesn't include some of the songs that other people know to be included in the show because Sondheim wrote new show or new music for it at different phases and things. Um and his commitment to, uh, you know, Mr. Sondheim's commitment to naming new spaces of injustice and in um, and inequity within, um, you know, cultural relevancy and as, as it grows and what how it shifts um, was a lifelong journey for him, which I think he continued to name even as each show adapted. Okay, so I I will admit I being completely unfamiliar with the show. I found on YouTube a community theater production of Merrily We Roll Along, and it was kind of a community theater production of Merrily We Roll Along. 
And then Spiff was like, you have to watch this documentary that's on Netflix about the original show and all of the stuff underneath it. And it messed me up. Like I was crying watching it and uh, in a good way. Like this wasn't Midnight Mass. Hey, it's horror. It was, it was just a whole lot of church. So the first thing I want to do is share a quote by Frank Rich as I research this show a little bit. Frank Rich was a brand new theater critic for the New York Times at that point. Uh, he hadn't ascended yet. And he loved Stephen Sondheim. And he wrote about Merrily We Roll Along. As we all should probably have learned by now, to be a Stephen Sondheim fan is to have one's heart broken at regular intervals. How do we, um, how do we, how do we deal with heartbreak in the church? Because I, I don't know if we do, and I don't know how we can at this point. Like to be a fan of Jesus is to have one's heart broken, arguably at regular intervals. But how do we make the church more feeling, I guess, is my question. You mean instead of frozen chosen? Right. Instead of people who think about salvation a lot. We make them watch merrily. We roll along at regular intervals. But the community theater production. So By the community theater production. I, I think we have responsibilities as faith leaders to actually do something about it, to name it, right? Like if we are heartbroken when we see a pregnant teen, you know, without support in a home um, on the streets today, why are we not naming that heartbreak in the Christmas narrative? Why are we not, you know, like how do we... Uh, look at art does such a beautiful job of reflecting life um, in new ways and helping us see ourselves in new ways. I think we as faith leaders could do well to be attentive to the ways in which these Sondheim musicals that truly break our heart, that truly inspire us, that give us, you know, new spaces of hope and new spaces of um, new spaces of joy and love and fear and all of the above um, to say, I see that in my life or in, you know, the world in this way. And then to name it, because that's what Sondheim is doing by writing these shows or writing this music and writing all of this is that he's naming what he sees um, in the documentary, um, which uh, is, I was like, I just had it up. The it's called. Thing the best thing that ever could have happened. Yeah. The best thing that ever could have happened. You can find it on, um, on Netflix. Netflix. Yes. <laughs> on the red one. Um, and uh, there, he, Sondheim talks about how he, right? I think it's Sondheim who says he was going to go to, or he was going to be a mathematician. Mm-hmm. And then he, he got to college and took a music class. And I just think how, uh, how much the world would have missed had he gone into something more st- stable or something, you know, air quotes around that, or something more, you know, that um, is a bit more respectable in some spaces and circles. Um but to uh, to lean into the arts and to have our children lean into the arts in ways that are life-giving and to support that, help us as a society name the ways in which we pain, the ways in which we long, the ways in which we love more faithfully. I think it also gets into kind of this, this challenge of church that I keep seeing and, and running into is that we, we so much want church to be comfortable mm. and we want to feel the familiar things and, you know, the, the liturgical calendar, you know, we repeat these things over and over and over. 
and they often for for me it feels like they become rote like they're they're just this is this is the way that we have always done it and so this is the way we're going to continue to do it um which is the fastest way to kind of close off your heart from that that sense of urgency and immediacy that the gospel is filled with um mm. and i think that's when you look at musical theater you know sondheim creates these complex messy disappointing uh uh, lives <laughs> that are intertwined in so many different ways and you you go to the theater and you're heartbroken like Arthur said you're over and over and so why can't we find a way to really um, break that dependence on comfort and and break that um, not willing to to be present with one another now in the world that we have. Because I think it's about, it's not routine. It's about, um, it's about consistency. I don't have the right word for this. I was, I was literally thinking today because I had to like stop and take breaks. I, I watched the documentary before we started the show because I, that's when I had time to do so. And it was, I, I literally remember thinking to myself, everyone should not be allowed to stay in a congregation for more than 10 years not just clergy, everyone, like you should at some point just be like sent out to uh, go to the church next door, go to the other Christian church. If there's not another, I know we're all DOC pastors, go to the next DOC congregation. If there is one. And if there's not, then go to the Methodists. Like let's do, let's do congregation exchanges. But then you say, here's the experience and the traditions and what's important. And what I really think matters to me here. And we all kind of have to like, Pull, what is it? Um, uh, you pull out treasure old and new and see what's worthwhile. Um, you know, the, the show, they showed clips in this documentary of people walking out during the performances. Like you can't avoid it because they stand up right in front of the camera and they're leaving. Um, and it's a, uh, let me see here. It was, um, oh, you could feel the discomfort. And Merrily's not a good show. I'm sorry. Like, I don't, I don't, and I've only seen the community theater production of it. So like from Los Angeles in like the nineties, but it's like, oh, okay. She's a, she's a drunk. Oops. She's a teetotaler. And like, oh, wow. It's a little ham fisted at times. I'm sorry, George Firth. I feel like you could do better. Um, but what if that's part of the point? Like, what if the point is discomfort and we don't sit in discomfort well, and we don't, we don't hold that. And I know we just kind of said that. I just, I, we walk no, out. We walk out. No, I just think, I think Arthur named what Douglas Hamilton or what you were just saying is so what Sondheim does is break away from the traditions of comfort, you know, or what the whole kind of crew did, right? In casting, in costuming, in set design, in, in the, the music and the book and all of it. And people wanted a Sondheim show. And people wanted, you know, and they they wanted that Sondheim print show. They wanted what they wanted company. They wanted all, you know, the things that they knew. They wanted West Side Story. And um, and then they leave because they don't get what they want. And so I think it's a both and question. It's uh, how do we both break the cycle of comfort, which I think we need to do in church writ large, because, yes, it is it's so routinely wrote. 
But also when we do that, how do we say it's okay to stay? Like it, we're with you, stay. Like we're still here. It is still a Sondheim show. Not a day goes by is still a, a, an incredible song that has that same power as, um, you know, any of the ballads of West Side Story or Sweeney Todd or anything else. It is still Sondheim. He still journeys with you. You carry that. Um, and you give the grace to say, maybe this wasn't my favorite, but also it's still a show. God is still here. So in, in the church, I'm thinking like, how do we, you know, flip the tables? How do we, how do we say here is an entire year of children's worship or, you know, or children's Sunday, and it is still just worship. It is not children's worship. It is still just worship. Um, we're not going to do that because people have expectations and thoughts and whatever. But I think what I'm hearing from both of you is, is a little bit of that, is that we need to disrupt it in ways that um, both make people uncomfortable, but also part of our job as a faith leader is to journey with them in that discomfort so that they don't actually leave the theater. But it's also, I think, having the courage to call out inappropriate behavior that makes com- that makes the comfort uh, stay like, so bookkeeper (laughs) currently, um, the people who threaten to pull their financial giving because they don't like something that's going on in a church. Mm -hmm. And that's equivalent to the people walking out of the theater because they don't like the show. And some people need to leave. I mean, like, yeah. And it's okay. if, If this isn't your cup of tea, well, I guess where it's like, maybe leave the theater, maybe leave that show, but don't leave your love of theater. Well, and it's, I'm always reminded of the Francis Chan quote. Um, Somebody said to him as they're walking out of worship, I really didn't get much out of worship today. And he said, it's a good thing. We're not worshiping you then. Um, It's like, um, it's. It's just that contemporary music. It doesn't, feed my soul in the same way. Right. So make yourself a damn sandwich. Like I'm not, I'm not an omelet chef. I'm a pastor. Uh, oh, excuse me. I'm sorry. That's a little, oh. no, Stephen Sondheim said in this, this documentary, uh, he was talking about how people just freaked out over the show and they're like, we don't like it. And what's wrong. And he said, we, we committed the unpardonable. I took notes for the first time in my life and I'm really excited. We committed the unpardonable crime of being Mavericks who were successful. And we could have been hacks and they would have been great with it. Or we could have been uh, creative, but poor. Um, And that just hit me in the heart, not at my current setting necessarily, but just in the church generally, because we can do these really cool one-off services, right? And we can be like, look how expensive it is. We're going to do Taizan and interpretive dance or whatever the spirit leads us to. But by God, we better get back to an organ prelude and a 20 minute sermon. Yeah. I mean, I, Yes. Rant over. Sorry, that wasn't really a question. I apologize. So Marilee goes backwards. Um, what would you say to uh, the, what would you say to yourself six months into whatever the start of your ministerial career is? You get to define uh. Six months into ministerial career. Yep. It's not about you. Mm. What this, this ministry that you're building, it's not about you. 
the resistance that you feel. It's not about you. Um, and, and take heart that you're doing what you need to be doing. And some people aren't going to like it. Some people are going to walk out. Hmm. Keep going. Yeah. Stephanie. This is uh, six months into my ministerial career. I would prop like knowing what I know now, I would probably say, don't just take a job to take a job, take a job that you are called to the, the, the work that you and God are doing has a particular purpose. It is not, it is for the world, but it will not be received by everyone in equal measure. So, uh, wait for the opportunity to serve in a way that uh, has reciprocity to it. I think I would tell myself six months in um, fully be yourself because the people who are worth it will fight for you just like you're fighting for them. And you can't serve well if you're not fully yourself. You can only serve in part if you're only being part of yourself. Also, please quit drinking. Well, and I would, I will, I'm going to name a second part of this. I think six months as, as someone who's second career, I would say something very different to myself in my first career and in my first six months, which would probably be a lot more of be yourself. Don't try and be, uh, don't try and model yourself after the men that have been successful ahead of you, mm-hmm. um, which it parallels to the church in lots of different ways, but because I came to the church with a much deeper understanding of who I am, because I was in my mid thirties and not, you know, in my early twenties, um, as I was in my other career, um, that I just, that's why I think you say things differently to yourselves in different seasons. Um, yeah. So, uh, for me, so for any of you out there, um, you know, that are in either secular or, you know, faith, uh, religious work, uh, be you. There are going to be people that don't receive it. And yet your joy is worth, uh, the fight and is worth showing up for. They can go to the church next door. They might make it better if they do. For okay, both. Now, 10 years later. No. 10 years later. Okay. <laughs> um, no, I wanted to, uh, Spiff brought up this idea about success and, um, I wanted to just speak to that a little bit because the show is about the pursuit of success. in in a prominent way. Um, And I I think the church can learn from that in the ways that this quest for success often gets derailed from what you were wanting in the first place. Mm -hmm. Um, So Frank, Franklin Shepard, the the protagonist of Merrily We Roll Along, is seeking this, at first, this lucrative, he wants to make music that people will hear and that will change the world, like this really noble quest. And as we go backwards, which is forwards in the the show, it's really confusing talking about it apart from the show, um, he slowly loses the music piece and it's focused on making money and making films and, and this more easy success that he's been able to find. And I think it's cheap success. How about that? I like that. 
Um, and I think the church can often veer off into cheap success as we've got more people, we've got more young families, we've got more money in our budget. Um, you know, I think about pastors when we meet and even when you're, you're telling somebody that I, I, I'm a minister at a church and they're like, how big is your church? Mm-hmm. Like that's the first question that we ask and that's a cheap success. I always say it's opinion. worldwide. How's your church? <laughs> um, no, I think you're, I think you're right. I think we forget to ask ourselves um, how we are defining success because especially in this documentary, um, I, I was with either, I was really moved by it. Um, and I, you know, I was familiar with the show, um, but hadn't seen the documentary and the, it starts off and everyone is just excited. They are like, this is the show that we want to be making. This is the show. Like if I die tomorrow, I am happy because I have made this show. And why does that change? Because financially it, you know, or like critically it become, you know, it, it isn't a hit. It, it, if it moved something in the, in the performers and in the, you know, um, the cast crew, you know, everyone that put it together, is that not successful? And I would venture to say yes and no, obviously there's lots of different ways to answer this, but I think that you have to continuously ask yourself, how are you defining success in this season, in this day, in this moment? And if the church could learn to do that, there are seasons in which we need to talk about why people are not coming back to the church and why we, you know, or why they're leaving the church. Absolutely. There are days in which it is appropriate to count butts and seats, as we say. It is not the only measure of success. It just happens on some days, it's okay. And on some days, the collection plate is, you know, let's look at that and talk about a strategic way in which we can like gain support and talk about that. And most days, I hope we are asking, are the two or three gathered in my name growing closer to God? Right. Um, and I think that we ask that question on special days rather than the other way around. And I think for the, for this musical, I think that that's what it, it it did well. It said, what do we want to change? What do we want to do? How do I, you know, there, I think it was Hal Prince, well, some one of them was saying like, it's so exciting to be in a room of young people's young, young experiences. Like they aren't jaded. They, you know, they have this kind of raw talent and energy and excitement about life and about, which is what the show is about. It is about life and uh which i almost just started saying rent and that's a whole other issue of mine um but um but so you know and and that is a measure of of art that should be taken seriously and yet what people talk about is 16 day run you know it hasn't had a real success successful uh term on a you know a notable stage west end you know broadway sort of a thing so that's my how do you measure success rant. Well, so with this cast, famously, the, the original cast was all young, as we've talked about, and they were supposed to play old and go back to young. Uh, how do I phrase this without sounding like I'm being hypercritical of the, the big C church? We do a disservice to our young people when we say stuff like they're the future of the church. They either are the church or they aren't, and they are. 
With Merrily, should we have older actors trying to play young or should we have younger actors trying to play old? Or do we just like, how do we make this show work? And as the corollary within the church, how do we give young people the room to be to be who they are at any age, if that makes sense? Or was this an Arthur question? I hope it's- No, I have an answer to that, but I want to hear what Douglas Ann has to think. Why don't you go ahead? I'm still processing. Sure. Um, I think we need to allow people to be themselves in the moment. So I think we would do well to cast three to five different actors to play the same part because there is different, we carry ourselves physically and emotionally different in different stages of life and how much more diversity of experience of personhood could we gain through that understanding if we say, okay, you six people are, you know, Frank. you are, yeah, you're Frank. Uh, what are the ways in which you are similar? What are the ways in which you are different? How will that narrate how Frank grows and change and moves, you know, from one space to the other? Maybe it's a physical kind of um, thing that you can all do together and learn from each other that maybe the oldest cast member of Frank does naturally. And, you know, or maybe it's the youngest one does naturally, you know, however that might look. And I think for the church, we should do the same, right? Like, what does it look like to, to say, to have at the table, you know, an intergenerational table and a, a table that is expansive in age, gender, sexuality, race, class, all of it and say, and, you know, here is the kingdom, you know, sharing the feast of Christ, um, rather than saying, yeah, here are the people that we have specifically cast in this role this Sunday to play this part. Like, what if you popcorned church scripture? Like, okay, everyone, you know, here's the scripture on the board behind me. Uh, we're going to just, you know, kind of zigzag up and down the pews. Everyone say the next word and we read it together. I mean, that's just kind of off the top of my head, but like, what does that look like when we allow people to be present in the moments that they are actually living to inform the work that we are called to do. I like that a lot. It reminds me, we did a, a pop-up uh, Christmas pageant um, once where we invited members of the congregation to like choose who you want to play. And so we had, you know, three Marys and <laughs> 15 angels and, um, you know, you put the, the, words that they say up on big cue cards so they can all say them together. And, um, I think, I think you, the part about allowing people to be in their fullness and visible in the church. Um, I really resonated with what's, what Spiff was saying. Um, I'm for the, the show itself. I'm not, I'm not convinced either way. I like the idea of, having multiple people playing the characters. I also, I'm, I'm, I think it's okay for the show to have young people in the roles because, you know? Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm with you. I, I, I too think that it's okay. I want to just like be clear yeah, yeah, I think yeah. like, because I think that it also, you know, maybe your gift is acting and you can show range and you can, you know, manipulate your body to be old or young or whatever. And, you know, if your craft is that, then, Let's do it. Um, and I think that I, th there's that too. I just don't want to discount what does it actually feel and look like to, you know, to say, 
to cast it in that way. You know, like, I don't know. I, I have not seen that done, I guess, is, is a way in which I would say, oh, I'm curious. And also maybe it's bad. And that's okay too, because I think a lot of what we are fearful in theater and the church, and as all you deuces know out there, uh, I my church has always been the theater. Um, I did not come to the church until, yeah, years later. And so where I find um, God most frequently in connection to my own soul and being is uh, in those silent moments when I get to turn off my phone and I don't have to be around anyone and I get to take in someone else's story and someone else's gifts um, so fully in that present moment. And so, um, but I think we are afraid to fail for, if not just for the reason that we're looking at a Sondheim show, like Stephen Sondheim is like the most prolific Broadway composer of all time, all time. I don't know, like if not one of, and yet, you know, here is this flop that we, that has a, its own documentary of it. Um, I also like for this, for the the cast, the way the, the original Broadway cast, like there's not a big name. There's not a Patti Lapone. Well. There's not a, like, and so it's Alexander. And Giancarlo Esposito. Okay. But okay. they were nobodies when they were cast. Right. Yeah. And yeah. so I, I really like that idea like I think translating into church like we know a lot of really wonderful preachers who have this huge reputation and then are able to go to whatever church they like and there are lots of other ministers who are maybe equally gifted in different parts of ministry who aren't that lucky and so it just it I like the idea that let's go with somebody who doesn't have this clout behind them because well, we want to do something new. And let's, let's create this collaborative environment in which we have to take risks and in which we get to reap rewards. I'm yeah. going to bring up two points here. One, we were all ordained through the Southwest region of the Christian church disciples of Christ. The final interview for the ordination process in the Christian church disciples of Christ in the Southwest is you walk into a room with one like ally and there's 30 to 40 people at tables in a circle who like rapid fire questions on everything from theology to polity to uh, really anything. All of, it. All of it. So I, I love it. I wish my interview could have been six hours long. Like I, I, I thrive on that. A room of 30 people who don't want to laugh at my jokes that I have to win over. That's called a, a stand-up show, right? I also help like coach and mentor is not the right word. Raging introverts who need time to think about answers to questions and who pray beautifully and who have to have time to craft words and can't just suddenly be like, well, let me tell you four differences between uh, Barton Stone and Alexander Campbell. Here we go. One, right? It's, it's that expectation. The second thing, I'll stop ranting in a second. When I served Midway Hills Christian Church in Dallas, a couple had transferred their membership to University Christian Church in Fort Worth. University Christian Church is a big steeple church. They're amazing. And our ministries look different or looked different. They still do, I assume. And that couple came back to visit Midway Hills and they gave me the greatest compliment. And it took me forever to realize it was a compliment. They said, you know, when we come here, it's refreshing because you all are amateurs. Like it's not polished. It's not professional. And it took me a while to realize it was uh, amateur. That is uh, lover of. 
And that's mm. what the kids were. They they were amateurs. They they eventually became professional. But they, uh, throughout this documentary, there was always I was sure they were going to fire me. I was positive this was my last day. They were totally going to fire me. We were amateurs. We were at risk. And that's part of the whole like we should all change churches within ten years of showing up at one. There has to be this like this 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 peril of community. So we're invested in it. So we're not just like I wanted another company because companies great. And there's only one, like there's only one university in Fort Worth. There's only one Midway Hills in Dallas. There's only one Riverside. Why can't it be what it's supposed to be? Not a cookie cutter of something else. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry. That wasn't even a question. No, you're good. Um, I, I think that there's a, I mean, there's a lot to process in all of this. Like, well, really is an answer right now. What? <laughs> Southwest region final ordination rules. No processing. Go. I'm just kidding. Sorry. And well, no, I mean, if we're talking, I, I talked about my ordination in a couple episodes back. I've talked about it a lot. Um, I really enjoyed it as well. And I think that it, it taught me a lot. It's something that it's actually, I, it might be the thing I'm most proud of in my life to date. Um, because I was scared out of my mind. I can still feel my body release the tension after I, when they're like, we need to talk, you know, and they release you. Um, for those of you that don't know, you're in that big room for like a little over an hour. I, mine was like hour and 45 minutes. It was a long time. And um, uh, because they just kept asking questions and it turned out they liked the, que- they liked my answers and they wanted to keep going and we kind of lost track of time, but then they ask you to get up so they can talk about you. Mm-hmm. So you are reviewed immediately. <laughs> you get your reviews back immediately. Um, which I think would is kind of what points me to my next question is like, we all have those people in church that will come up to you and say, not your best sermon <laughs> or whatever it is. Um, and I think often we, you know, it's like, oh, okay, great. Thanks so much. Uh, but is there something there that we undervalue? Should we ask people to be more, what, uh, let me rephrase that. Would we gain more as a church as we cast vision for what is yet to be in our communities if we made space for that more immediate feedback for those that can give it and for those that need a moment to process um, for, you know, however they process and do things, you know, to also allow for that to happen. Like, is there, I don't know many churches and maybe that's just because the two I've served didn't do this. So correct me if I'm wrong, but like that the process of feedback and what is life giving is a continuous and open conversation. I mean, one, I'm I'm impressed that people listen and are able to say that wasn't your best. Like that's leaps and bounds away from good sermon every Sunday. Um, But yeah, I think, you know, I've seen some really cool examples like the the gathering here in the DFW yeah. area. They have the talk back after the sermon where people can put forth their what they heard in the, the scripture, what they heard in the sermon. Um, and so I think that's, that's a really cool example. Um, but also, like, how do we, like, the in some ways, preaching is really wasteful. <laughs> Because Ooh, yeah. every Sunday we come up with this, you know, and some Sundays it's going to be not your best sermon, um, but it still has some 
nugget of something that we need to continue to think about and continue to process and continue to, to put forward in like today. Okay. Today, how does this resonate with my life? Um, but we just move on to the next one and we move on to the next one and we move on to the next one. Like I think back to kind of history of, of the church and when you have traveling preachers. And so you've got a church that's sitting with a sermon for however long until they get a new preacher in. And like, there's, there's, there's time to sit with it. Um, and so I, I wonder if there are ways to, to do that as well. Um, mm. To have, my, one of my uh, colleagues in ministry, um, we were serving the same church together and we'd preach on the same scripture for a couple weeks in a row or we one after the other. I can't, I can't remember exactly, but like one of us would preach about it and then the second one would preach about it. And so it was a, it was a continuation and there were some new things that would be brought forward, but it also just refresh in people's minds what the last sermon was about. And so I don't know if there's ways to make it not so every Sunday is a different show. Well, and that's, you know, part of what I really like. Oh, sorry, Arthur, did you have something to say? I no, I just really like that. And that's all I want. I do too. Yeah. Um, well, so I, the last, I think, three years I've done this in which I preach on this. So I write our weekly newsletter um, so that there's a, um, especially um, when, Pastor Kaji is preaching so that our community gets two different takes on the text and, you know, you get to engage it that way. But when she's gone on her sabbatical or when I'm um, on, you know, my sabbatical, but when she's on her sabbatical, usually during the month of August, I pick two weeks and I preach the exact same scripture just in, I, I do it in entirely different ways. And my newsletter is different. So it's four separate exegesis, exegesis, exegesis. <laughs> Uh, exegesis that I do for within these two weeks, I use different illustrations. I come at the text in different ways. And for me, I see that very much in this merrily kind of um, near, you know, storyline of its inception to kind of even today that like, it's the same, but very different. And it's the intentionality that you put into it. It's meaning the casting or the music or the location or just culturally and socially where we're at writ large, how the viewer might see it. Um, And it's been a really helpful thing in which that I have continued every year, because if we do believe that God is still speaking and, you know, especially through scripture. And for me, that often also resonates for um, scripts and musicals and plays and the, the, you know, the theater that I get something new. I've seen rent 40 times and every single time I get something new out of it. Um, and so I wonder if, uh, for us as faith leaders and as theater lovers, if there isn't something to, you know, it's a new show every night and yet it is the same show every night. And yet we are all new people. Um, and how might that translate to our uh, worship leadership or our faith and community leadership? It's also, I think, the obsession with busyness. Mm. And like mm. in the show, like as I'm thinking through the songs, like we start at the end of the the journey with these like up-tempo, hi dreadful fabulous like my name you know and and we go backwards and there are some moments like not a day go by not a day goes by it's like a stop in your tracks and reflect moment but then as you get 
to the end of the show, but the beginning of their their friendship, you've got this beautiful like melody that's that's hopeful and it's not crazy tempo and like just the if the tempos of the show um, have made me think about this like this pace of, of preaching that we do and, and the church always yearning for the next piece. Um, and so how do, how do we make space for the reflective within our worship services, within our church life? I think we stop frantically trying to survive. Mm. Um, there's such a difference between survival and living. Um, something I learned about the cast recording was it was recorded the day after the show closed. And it was the last time the cast was together. Frank Rich again, I love this quote. Uh, it's really accomplished young actors performing the shit out of something. Um, and there's no, there's no like great accolade coming from this. There's no accord. There's just this love, this, this, this amateur, amateur, but I can't make it an adjective. There's that. And we're, I think there's a level of the fear of death in every congregation of if we don't do this, if we don't keep going, if we don't, no dead air, no shift between worship leaders, no chance to stop, no chance. Let's get communion done in five minutes. How do we make people move faster? Like, it's like, if we don't stop, we'll die. Um, I think it goes back to the comfort thing because we don't want to die because we don't want to change. Right. And the only way to change is to be transformed. And the only way to be transformed is to die because that's how resurrection works. Yes. Anyways, well, and I think we, it, it, give, it gives us, um, no, well, I think that there's something really beautiful to it, right? That they, it's the end of the show is them, I think, graduating high school, right? It's like, or they're like young, like very, like 18-ish. And they first come to New York and it's this yeah, and place they, of possibility and yeah. friendship. And and that's exactly it. It's the possibility to dream that allows us to reflect in ways that feel melodically mellow let's say um whereas in the you know as you get older and more responsibility happens and life happens and loss happens and new dreams deferred and new dreams to imagine the space in which to envision or the space that we give ourselves to envision or cast vision narrows and so it feels it's this very staccato-esque kind of um, music that accompanies certain stages of life I have experienced. And I think that this show very much speaks to that, that like you get this high energy tempo thing because we're trying to remind ourselves that we aren't tired. And um, Ooh. <laughs> you always do this like 10 minutes left and you're like, here's, here's a grenade. It's great. Yeah, we. I mean, we're all on a stage of life, especially, I mean, we're in a pandemic. We're, you know, there's lots of things that are keeping us tired these days. And we are trying our very best to not be, to tape our eyes open and to, you know, belt it out and to give the energy, hi, I'm terrible, you know, or hi, dreadful, fabulous. And it's just go, 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 go. Whereas I think we can learn a lot from like this Gen Z generation that it's, you know, coming up into adulthood that has a lot less um, energy towards the uh, undesired. Towards the maintenance of busyness. Yeah. 
that that's perfect. They have a lot less energy towards the maintenance of busyness, which to me, if you think in melody is, is just a ballad for life at this for them, um, where the rest of us are, you know, uh, banging the drums. Hopefully it's not part of the outro. You know who else we can learn from introverts, right? (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm actually pausing for the sake of it. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry, DA. Are we just like hammering you with? No, 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 no. I'm just, I'm just. No, I think you are absolutely correct. Um, It is hard as an, I'm an extrovert. Shocking to zero humans Um, (laughs) or animal. Shocking to literally no one. Um, And so uh, I, I, I don't mean to overlook or dismiss. I do think that there is a lot to learn from from our introverted friends that also, you know, but also theater doesn't give time for that either because theater doesn't actually give the time to think and reflect on in the actual pace of life because we'd be in the theater for hours and hours most days, especially musicals. I mean, uh, there are certain straight shows that I think absolutely do that, but you know, are we really getting the reflection of these characters on their life and what actually got them to where they're at no, that we're getting a quick, you know, musical interlude that then cuts to a refrain that then gives you a new vignette of another time in their life. But uh, it's like, that's like all art, right? It, yeah. If it's good art, you keep thinking about it. Mm. You may not like it, but it, it's something that continues to stir within you. And you may go see it again because you just can't get that piece out of your head and you want to see it again. Um have you seen a good introvert played in musical theater? I'm curious. And only because I think you named something really specific and important that um, that is lost in just kind of this conversation. One, because we're a talk show podcast, right? And we're like, we got to be on and we're talking all the time and it's theater. So you got to be on and you're talking all the time. And yet you name, we can learn the space of reflection well from our introverted friends. And if art is to imitate life, in ways that are helpful. I'm wondering if you've ever seen that. So (laughs) showing my uh, musical theater. um, So in Little Women, Mm -hmm. uh, the character of Marmy has this beautiful song where she's reflecting on the love that she had for her husband. And it's just this, like I could see that as being the introverted moment. Like, I think ballads in general tend to give us that introverted introspection piece. Um, putting that, yeah, that a ballad is that is, um, is based for our introverts to to be seen, to feel, to process, to, yeah. lengthen, to lengthen the 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 thought that is kind of forced upon the the scene. Right. Marion the librarian was what I was going to say mm. from the music man. The Music Man, by the way, swept the Tonys the year it went up against West Side Story. I'm going to mention that in every Sondheim episode. I <laughs> hope you don't because it is in my top three least favorite musicals. But, oh, no, uh, it's I'm I'm salty about that forever. Um, I do want to keep us cognizant of the time. Uh, it's part of my job as uh, executive producer of uh, this program. Um, let us move to the final question, please. 
Yes. Dr. Sam, thank you so much for coming on again. We are so grateful. Uh, I love that you continue to come back with, um, you're my little partner in musicals and uh, in theater and that we have Anytime. This- we have Anytime. this connection. Yeah, please keep coming. I, I uh, Come on up to New York. I know y'all were just here, uh, but uh, let's keep doing this because I have some thoughts on Broadway this season. Um, but what, as we are talking about Merrily We Roll Along and as we uh, anxiously anticipate the movie that will come out in 20 years, um, what biblical story, narrative, theme, character uh, are you most reminded of in Merrily We Roll Along? So I have two, but I'm going to go with the first one because I think you might be answering the second one um, in what we've talked about a little bit already. Um, So I'm going to go with David um, because of that, that we see David as this lowly music maker at the beginning of his story. And then, you know, God intervenes and fate intervenes and you know, he gets the success that he had never imagined and it's kind of tainted for him, um, for his legacy of, of his infidelity and his, uh, murdering of people and, and like that, that kind of losing that lowly music part of who he was at the beginning. So I'm going to go with that. But if, and then I have another one if it's not what you're going to say. <laughs> not what I'm going to say. So I, I want to hear what your other one is. Yeah. Well, my other one was talking about the, the like homiletical focus, um, how we go, we zoom in and then we zoom out through the past. Um, so I, did you want to speak to that? How we kind of talked about? Okay. So um, just shout out to Dr. Poppy, but yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. So like we, as we read scripture in our, worship services. We are in the present moment reading scripture. We're going back to the origin story of it that was then passed down through generations that was decided upon and translated uh, by a variety of people. You know, we have the Council of Nicaea. We have like that's this, this stacking of historical reference um, and context and it's, it's kind of, we often, it, I, I would say often, but as pastors, we, we often think about it, but kind of for the, for the lay person, we don't often think of like all of this, this, le- this level of history and context that we have layered on top of one another. And so this show is that same kind of forward, backwards, the, the farther you get into the show, the earlier it is, but you're building upon what you've seen previously and it becomes more um you understand more as you go and so that that kind of i'm just going to keep doing this because i think this tells kind of the layering that i'm trying to to speak for, for our listeners she's, she's pulling her hands apart uh well, in, a, in a horizontal fashion I'm actually yes. going to be pulling my hands apart in a vertical fashion okay um this show we have to talk about like I, I think it's rooted in its floppiness. Like there's there's almost a subversive quality to doing merrily we roll along because it failed. Mm. And every time it's done and it's constantly a work in progress, uh Sondheim famously said of the show, we only bettered it, we never fixed it. Mm. And I think in that way, the church it, this is the church's ministry of reconciliation. 
uh, please watch the documentary. Please listen to the track and everything else. Please watch best worst thing that ever could have happened on the red one, because at the end they go back and they actually yeah. process it. And they talk about grief and they talk about hurt. And some folks are like, I never acted again after that. And some people are Jason Alexander and there's this depth, but there there can't be reconciliation without conflict. There can't be restoration without failure. There can't be, it's, it's the way the church should be, but we have to fail first. And we're just failing by insisting that we're going to get another company, so to speak. And is the church fixable? Is merely we roll along fixable. Exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, to what end are we trying to fix? Exactly. Like what are, what of the church are we fixing? Right. Like to what are we fixing? And so if our goal is to just make it better each time we enter, um, I think that that that's beautiful. Arthur. Um, my answer is uh, I I'm going with a, a particular verse, which is unlike what I normally do for my final answers. Is it uh, it's not revelation. And it's not revelation. Uh, I know. Wow. <laughs> called out uh we all know i love this revelation time no but um i was reading this uh we've got some lots of things happening in the church and so uh i this came across my uh my desk this week and i kind of pulled it and i was like i think that this is merrily for me and um and what it hopes that it is doing and it's proverbs 13 12 that says hope deferred makes the heart sick but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life and I think that really what this story is about are these dreams deferred, these hopes deferred, that they are bitter in these ender or these latter stages of life because of the ways in which they have deferred certain things and not leaned into um, these desires and the ways in which they feel truly called that would have been probably uh, who knows? Cause you know, you can't actually go backwards, but would have been um, more fulfilling um, and give and life giving for them. So dreams don't die. So keep an eye on your dreams. Yeah. All right. Friends, this has been two on one. We're super glad Reverend Douglas Ann Cartwright for joining us again and talking about maybe the most problematic Sondheim show there is <laughs> just a bang up job about it. You knocked it out of the park. Friends, go to jeffwunro.com, J-E-F-F-W-U-N-R-O-W.com. Use our new promo code, two-on-one, all letters, and then the numbers, one-five, uh, for 15% off your entire stole purchase. Buy seven, get one free, as we always say. On behalf of two-on-one, I'm the Reverend Arthur Stewart. I'm the Reverend Stephanie Kendall. And I'm Douglas Ann Cartwright. Yeah, you are. And, yeah, uh, you are. <laughs> I had to think about it for a second. That's my introvert. So that, like what's my name what is your name goodbye everybody <laughs> get more two on one at two on one project.com <laughs>